From the Rose City in beautiful downtown Portland, Oregon, home of bikes, books, bridges, beards, food carts, startups, and indie coffee. Grab your dog, snatch your hammer and beer, leave your umbrella at home. Welcome to the Tiny House Podcast. It's the Tiny House Podcast. I'm Perry. I'm MJ. And I'm Mark. No, you're not. <laughs> you're the one. You, the, no, you're not. Mark is not with us today. Um, he has a personal emergency, and so it's just me and Michelle carrying the ball. It was morning. so funny because Mark was texting this morning. He's like, Perry, are you there? Perry, Perry, are you I was you wondering there? where he was talking about. And I texted him back and I said, damn, I'm seeing Perry. Like, there's something going on. <laughs> so now we know what's going on. Yeah, he needed to contact me to show, show me how to run the system since I've never done it before and he's not here. So for people that are not <clears throat> in our studio or haven't seen, we, I don't think we've ever posted pictures. But man, this setup is like... Amazing. It, and ever, I swear, every time I come in, it gets a little bit more complex and yeah. tech. And uh, so it's this full soundboard and the studio. It's just crazy. It's crazy. So thank you, Perry, for wearing the producer hat oh, uh, sure. for the next few shows. Well, you know what this, for the next, oh, that's true. Yeah. And you know what this means is that I'm going to be able to just sit back and relax and not say hardly anything. Oh. And you get to run the show. I'm playing Mark today. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> I should have known that was coming. Alexa, <clears throat> are you available to help me today? Hmm. I don't know that. She needs more coffee. She needs something. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, what's going on in the tiny house world today, Michelle? I think probably the biggest news is here in Oregon. We finally have the DOT and the DMV, and they're all shaking hands and playing well in the sandbox together, and we can now get titles, and we can tow them and haul them and register them and inspect them, and we're all pretty freaking excited about that. I bet you're excited. How'd that come about? So I think it was just an ongoing, an ongoing effort of many of the uh, many of the people in the tiny house movement here in the state of Oregon that put on their advocacy hat and showed up in in Salem and said no 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 we may be small but we're not going away. Um, There's a couple of tiny house builders that we've actually had on our show that actually towed their tiny houses and parked it in front of the Capitol wow, building. That's cool. Um, kind of out of a small peaceful protest kind mm-hmm. of a perspective. Mm-hmm. So yeah. We finally have something. There's still a little bit of the letter of the law. Not quite sure. Of course, as you can imagine, the DMV, walk in the DMV and ask the lady at the desk who may or may not even know what a tiny house is. Hopefully she does. And say, (laughs) okay, we need to do this. And she'd be like, what? (laughs) <laughs> Let me give it my supervisor. So right now we're we're working through that. We're working through that. That's probably the biggest news I think in mm. the tiny house. But that's just because it's it's close to know, home. Yeah, it's yeah. really close to home. Yeah. Any kudos you want to give to any specific people who are instrumental in making that happen? Yeah, the American <coughs> Tiny House Association. They have been very, very, very loud in this regard. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I was, you know, I was a little concerned up front of the shall we say process that they were that we were being a, a little too loud, like. You know, walk talk, you know, walk softly and carry a big hammer mm-hmm. kind of a thing. They weren't walking softly, but that's what got it done. That's what that's what it took to get it done. Mm-hmm. And so, kudos to everyone in that organization. Can I? Uh, there's a there was a guy we t- in the context of this issue. There was a specific guy we were talking about talking a- about 
whose manager was unwilling to fire him because he had sued the city or the state maybe a couple yes, times in Mark one. Long, yeah. Oh, you can say his name. <laughs> is <laughs> He can't touch me. Okay, is he is how how did you guys get around? How did you guys get around him? Um basically what he was I would say forced to say, but he I don't know that he was for that's my own personal perspective. Yeah. He put out a statement that said, "Oh, I'm sorry. When I changed his little rules over here, I inadvertently, you know, set off this little situation and I that really wasn't the intent of what I was doing." He actually put out a statement? Yes. That's a but that's a big step on that's his part. That's why I'm thinking that he was forced to do yeah. it because he's not exactly <laughs> like this helpful guy. <laughs> right. Uh, so I thought for sure that, uh, yeah, so they put out a statement and said, we made these changes that accidentally, inadvertently, um, I'm sorry, we did this and it, all this happened and it's fixed now. Yay. Good, nice. good for us. Nice. Nice. And what is, do you know what else is going on in the tiny house movement around the world, country? <sighs> Well, we have a lot of events. Event season, of course, is coming yep. up. We have the People's Tiny House Festival in Colorado, mm-hmm. which is actually the same weekend of what used to be the Jamboree. Um, then we have, of course, the Jamboree is also coming up in August. They moved it to Austin, Texas this year. So I think the political environment there will be a much more a better suited mm-hmm. for that event. Mm-hmm. The one trend this year um, is that they're not really hiring speakers. Like there's not the the speaker platform is definitely a afterthought for the predominance of the shows. It's all about the houses. Why do you think that is? Is it economics? Uh, yeah, I think they're really expensive. And I think it'll probably normalize next year than year after that. My personal opinion is that, of course, speakers are expensive, you know, and you've got travel expenses and all kinds of other yeah, things to get around. speakers, right? Mm-hmm. Or you have speakers that come that may not exactly know you know, they haven't built a house yet, but they're working oh, on it, right, that kind of thing. So right. I think it'll probably normalize because what I think is that the festival people in general, I think they're undermining probably the marketing opportunity. It's not just paying for a person to come to their stage. It's also paying for access to their entire network of people. Mm-hmm. So they're aver- they're not, you know, advertising as much mm-hmm. to other parts of the country. They're always going to get the locals. They're always going to get the locals mm-hmm. who got nothing to do on a Saturday mm-hmm. or a Sunday. Mm-hmm. But as far as people flying across country to come see their favorite guy or their favorite girl on stage, that is looking like it's going to be a much, much less uh, common occurrence. Yeah, well, it, it seems as though now with so many festivals going on in so many different places, a person doesn't have to travel around. To There's that to too, right? I think the festivals are being forced to be maybe a little bit more responsible in their budget management. Yeah. And one way to do that is to cut some of the most expensive aspects, which is the speakers, which yeah. totally makes sense. I'm totally supportive. Um, but unfor- on the other hand, however, I think they're going to, it's going to normalize next year a little bit. I'm, I'm thinking it's going to. So you think they'll bring some speakers back in? Right. I think there'll be a better balance. It kind of makes year. sense because, I mean, there, there has to be more than just the houses sitting around as a draw, especially right. if you're kind of missing opportunity 
to do maybe workshops and things like that to have speakers, right? Well, they're doing panels. They're doing some oh, panels okay. and some workshops, but they're primarily consisting of the people that brought their houses. Oh, right. That are already there. Right. You know, so that makes sense. Again, it 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 definitely makes sense, but it's a definite change mm-hmm. in the wind, shall we say, for all of the events mm-hmm. in really downplaying. Um, the the speaker roles. Um, who knows? I, I envision a day, too, where they actually come up with an application system or criteria that says, if you would like to come speak at our event, please fill out this form. Mm-hmm. What do you want to talk about? And what are your credentials? And that kind of thing. What's your social media exposure? Yeah, yeah. Sort of like How earn, well earn your you? way to the stage mm-hmm. kind of a thing, too. Mm-hmm. Who knows? That, that may come around, too. Do you have any idea how hint, much... Hint. <laughs> Do you have any idea how much those events are are making for the organizers? No, um, no, I don't. But I can tell you that I was. Someone called me a couple of weeks ago and said, "Hey, I'm think I used to be an event planner, and I recently went to an event, and I'm thinking about starting my own event. So, do you want to help me with starting an event?" I was like, "No," <laughs> <laughs> because I have to say that even if they're making boatloads of money. I mean, and who really, who really knows what their yeah. expenses are? Yeah, yeah. I can tell you what the gross is at the gate. Like that's about it. But yeah. um, <clears throat> some of the events, you know, portray themselves more as philanthropic, and they give away a lot of money. Some of the events are like, nope, we earned every stinking <laughs> penny, and we are not ashamed. Some of the events actually have investors, you know. Oh, really? Back backline investors that fund the whole huh. thing up front. So you never know, Didn't of know course, that. to what extent that that the repayment is. But so I don't know that's true, but. I do know for a fact that they're way more work than I think is probably like That's logical. That's the way I feel about it. Yeah, like not. I'm not in the event. Like you guys invite me, I'll show up, uh-huh. do my thing, go home. But mm-hmm. um, and I've of course I've volunteered for quite a few of them as well. But yeah, who knows? Who knows? But my theory is they're making decent money because yeah. every year everybody thinks. Oh, let's throw a bunch of tiny houses in a parking lot. Let's invite people and charge twenty bucks a piece. Yeah, with mixed success rates. Yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of making bunches of bucks, our guest today <clears throat> has traded in making bunches of bucks for fame and for fame, but not fortune. <laughs> maybe we'll find out when we talk to Eric Gordon, uh, who is. Is it okay to use your last name? I go by Eric G. But, uh, that's uh, what I just noticed. That sorry I go about by that. Eric G. Because Gordonson's a big name. Okay, yeah. Gordon. <laughs> um, he is the host. Uh, well, he's a kitchen designer, certified kitchen designer. Excuse me, and the host of a. Did you say thirty or fifty? I've done twenty twenty eight years now of kitchen design. And how long has the show the show been around? Around the house has been around for thirty five years. Yeah, thirty five years. Thirty five year old radio show. That's that's like going on. That's going on par with uh, the rest of the story. Do you guys remember that rest of the story? The rest of the story. Yeah. <laughs> what was that guy's name? That was uh, Paul Harvey. Paul Harvey, yeah. yes. Rest in peace, right? You got it. Yeah, rest in peace. Uh, anyway, so uh, Eric uh, hosts Around the House, which I don't listen to the radio, so I don't know anything about this show, but apparently it's on the radio, KXL here in Portland. And Michelle, you want to fill us in? What is that show about? Yeah, so it's a call-in radio show. It's every <clears throat> Saturday from noon until 2. And um, they basically, they have a subject of the week, kind of. And then Eric walks through and talks to the guest and walks through the subject of the week, takes calls and has sponsors. And the format, I think, is really a lot like our podcast format um, in, in that it's kind of off, you know, on the fly. Um, I was on a show a little while ago, but was really cool or interesting or different 
different than our show, of course, is he's, we've got these huge, he has these big glass rooms, right? So he's got a room with a guy that takes the calls, and he's like, they're doing hand signals mm-hmm. back and forth. And then there's another room in back of that room, and so it was all very, like, professional. We've got all these support, and then we had interns that day or something. <laughs> it was, it felt a little like pandemonium. It but was. But in the studio itself, it was just him and I, and so huh. the, it was pretty fun, though. I really, I had a really good time, and I wanted to invite him to sort of come talk to our show and our listeners about his perspective on tiny houses. I think we I, we always talk about, let's think outside the tiny box. Well, our guest today is truly outside for the tiny sure. box. For sure, for sure. So welcome, Eric Gorenson, to the show. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. So, um, so, so yes, uh, taking off of Michelle's riff here, it, what do you, initially, what, I know it's hard to, so, so Eric is in the studio, he's a studio guest, we don't usually have that, and I'm, I'm running production, so I'm not usually sitting where I usually sit, and so I can't see Eric, because... Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something different okay. here, I'm going to go like this. There we go, now, there we go, that's side, much better, it's so much other. easier to, <laughs> to converse when you can see him in the eye, look him in the eyes. So, so what do you think, as, a, as kind of an outsider to the tiny house movement, what do you think about the, the movement and where... Where it's going. I love tiny homes, to be honest. I do. I think there's a huge space for them out there. And I actually think there's a lot of things that haven't been done yet with tiny homes that I think there's business opportunities. I think there is a lot of opportunities for them to be even more mainstream than they are now. Really? Um, what what other areas are you seeing? I mean, we're seeing the uh, some of the business opportunities with uh, Airbnb rentals and large communities going on. In fact, I think we're going to be talking to someone about that today, later today. Yep. The big community. Yep. Yeah. Nice. And so, so what, and, and I've also seen, we've also seen um, tiny houses be adapted as, um, what do you call those things when they're like the doers, the doers tiny house? Com- uh, corporate. Traveling, cor- corporate. traveling showrooms. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, traveling showrooms. Yeah, yeah. What other areas are you thinking of? You know, I see a huge demand out there because, you know, people will do kitchen and bathroom models or whole home remodels, and they have to go out and rent a home and uh, go out and move someplace. Oh. So if you could actually roll the family into a tiny home for a rental mm-hmm. on their own property mm-hmm. for 120 days or what, how many days do you have? Oh, that's innovative. It's like a construction trailer. Yeah. But it would roll in there. The kids are still going on the same school bus yeah, every yeah. day. They're still playing next door at the neighbor's house. How come we never thought of this? Because <laughs> <laughs> it takes someone who's outside the box, I guess. I don't know. I mean, That's think about that. For all the remodels and construction people out there rolling in a tiny home, in the maybe it's in the driveway. Maybe it's on the on the side of the house. Maybe mm. it's someplace just out of the way for the construction crews. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's in the backyard. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's in there for four to six months while this big, huge remodels goes on. And the people can still live in their general comfort. It could be an adventure. And it's a six-month lease or something yeah, like yeah. that. They move it in, and then it goes off to the next family that needs a place. Yeah, that's really interesting, actually. Have you have you ever stayed in a tiny house? I have not. I have not. It's it's. Uh, I've stayed in some really tiny hotel rooms before <laughs> in big cities, but I've never done the, never done the tiny home thing. But uh, it doesn't fit my lifestyle as well uh, with kids and everything else from mm. what I'm doing right Tools. now. Tools is the big thing. I, I mean, know. we talked about this. Yeah. I got a three-car garage filled with uh, a couple classic hot rods and a bunch of tools. So mm. that doesn't fit as well 
when the when the garage is four times bigger mm-hmm. than the tiny home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I but I still appreciate the fact that he you know you can you appreciate the fact that a tiny house is not just a tiny house, not just a tiny house. There's like so many different things that we can do with them. That's such a great idea. It is a great idea. So so the the um, <clears throat> as a kitchen kitchen remodeler um, designer, uh, what do you think about? Have, have, well, let me ask you: Have you have you been in a tiny house? Have you looked at a tiny house? Oh yeah, I've been in them plenty of times. I okay. was over to a tour of the the new one coming up, and and I've designed a version of that. I, I did some kitchen designs in the '90s in Japan of very tiny homes. So I was living here in the states, working for a cabinet company, and I was designing little micro homes in Japan from the states here. I was living in Seattle, but I was you know basically doing it via email and I would be designing out these little tiny kitchens with the specialty Japanese appliances in them and we were shipping the cabinets over to Japan and they were being built in the Seattle area and so I've done a lot of the the, the of a similar design concept just maybe in a different shell wow that's fascinating would would was that work considered high end in Japan since it was coming from America? Or? Yeah, they, at that time there was a really big, and I think there still is some of having an American cabinet and American companies right. having that over there was kind of uh, the Levi jeans. Mm-hmm. Wow, I'm going to buy that cool new hip thing. What was the year? What was the time frame on that? That would have been two, th- actually in that kind of ninety nine to two thousand two range. Thought so. So Mark, of course, my boyfriend slash framer, he worked in Japan for a year and a half on construction projects, kind of under that same mantra. Interesting. Yep. Like the the you know Japanese contractors, they would literally import American crews to come work over there. That was considered kind of a very highbrow thing to do. It was the luxury item of the day. Yes, really? exactly. That's my boyfriend, the luxury item I know. of the day. <laughs> I know. Well, what's funny is that the Japan actually changed some of the rules with that, where they had to go through and do this whole licensing thing of American building products that slowed that down a lot in about 2005, 2006. They were changing a lot of the rules to huh. make it a lot harder for American companies to go do business in Japan because they had to have, there was cabinetry certifications that took years to accomplish wow. to get the products there. I have to say from his stories, it probably was a downhill effect of having so many Americans there because one thing that Mark was struck the most when he was in Japan, some of the things, is they had, their building codes were like, yeah, put a deck on the side of that thing over there. <laughs> like they Like their use of fasteners was mm-hmm. like the same fastener for the entire house. Like there was no like ingenuity or standards or, you know, that kind of thing. So he was pretty surprised by that. So it was probably an evolution of the building industry that we sort of also spurred along, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting, you know, just even watching the home improvement shows out there, you'll watch a Canadian based home improvement show and you're like, there's no tar paper going on before those shingles. What's going on? <laughs> That's code there. Right. You know, and it's, there's a lot of those things like that 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 the internet and I think I think just people's general awareness of what's going on in building around the world is huge and I think it's it's probably made homes across the world just a little bit safer in the long run because people are more aware. I mean, it uh, I think before the days of the internet and before the days of maybe shipping other products in mm-hmm. and I think there's been a lot more collaboration in the building industry, especially when you're getting into earthquake codes and things like that that I think there's a lot more going on out there to make homes safer, especially in countries that 
that well, our homes have lasted thousands of years here. They'll be fine. Like Japan. But, like yeah. Japan. Yeah. But they still have some pretty significant damage when they have an earthquake, right, for instance. Right. So I think that it's I think it helps everybody along the road. That that's one of the kind of the benefits of the internet and a little bit of collaboration. And if you bring in, you know, those companies that deal with those things and they're all of a sudden doing business in Japan, that brain trust kind of helps change those codes a little bit and make them a little bit safer. That's really hmm. interesting. One other question about this Japan thing, and then we get to get back to tiny houses. But so when you when you designed kitchens for Japanese homes, understanding they were micro because they don't have a lot of space there. Did it look like an American kitchen or were you designing Japanese kitchens? I was designing Japanese kitchens because the Japanese appliances at that time were very specialty for Japan. They had little open grills. They had things that were not... It's nothing that you would see in a typical U.S. appliance store. Just, you wouldn't see it. And mm. so they were, it was a little goofy to work with for the first time. I bet. You know, because it's like, oh, okay, now how does this work? Well, how would you use that? <laughs> you know, so there was a lot of cultural things that I kind of had to figure out in the beginning mm. of, oh, okay, that's why that's done. Mm. And then, you know, you ship it over there in a container and off you go. Wow. to the next one. So wow, interesting. it was interesting. It was just a lot different. You know, little tiny refrigerators that are, that were, Really similar to what you'd see in a in a small travel trailer versus a full size refrigerator because most everybody was just getting their stuff in fresh and it was supposed to make it for a night or two and it was a lot of that just in time kind of yeah. food buying there yeah. they weren't going to Costco and, right. and loading up so <laughs> well that again that goes back to that overall housing size difference over there versus over here even if they did go to Costco they wouldn't have any place to sleep well that yeah that and the density I mean it, yeah. it seems as though as as a community gets more dense. And um, people are less interested in traveling far. And so these little grocers, like in New York, there's a grocer on almost every block. And you go and get your food for the night, and you put it in the refrigerator, and then you eat, you make it. And then the next night, you go and do it again. Yeah. You don't go buy a bunch of stuff and stock it up like you, like we do in places like Portland. Yeah, absolutely. It's funny. He, ta- he mentions the just-in-time methodology. Um, of course, that's a manufacturing methodology as well. But I've written um, a blog actually called Lean Manufacturing for Tiny Houses. And that is the notion that, you know, even... People are like, oh, we want these huge kitchens, and almost everybody I know that's built a tiny house with a huge kitchen because they wanted all that food storage Mm -hmm. actually ends up they still have – the kitchen is still too big once they change their lifestyle to that, what we just talked about. You know, that just-in-time stop on the way home, fresh vegetables and fruit. You're buying what's in season as opposed to what's expensive in the freezer, you know, that kind of thing. My freezer, I think, is still a bit too small, but I'm I'm still working. Two years later, I still feel like I'm – like adjusting to my space. <laughs> well, it, it's funny when I look at tiny house, tiny houses on Pinterest or whatever. Um, the kitchens look so large to me, and it, it's if anyone's ever looked, any of our listeners has ever looked at a sailboat that has a kitchen in it. The, the kitchens are really tiny. In fact, not only are they tiny, but they're designed so that if the boat rocks, you you get supported by the cabinet behind you. Exactly. And so you can barely fit two people in a sailboat kitchen. And it seems like that's more appropriate for a tiny house so that you can have some living room space. A lot of the tiny house designs, the kitchen is your living room yeah. in many cases. So anyway, the, the reason why I was asking you about cabinet or, and kitchen design was do you need one? No, I was, I was, I was hesitating about how I want to say this so that I don't impinge any builders in the community. Oh, so um, <laughs> impugn? Yes. <laughs> so how how what should a person look for? So a lot a lot more people now are going towards having their tiny house built than bu- mm-hmm. building it themselves. And smart, at, yeah. 
uh, yes. And some of some of the people are getting shafted. Sure. And so, what should someone be looking at in a in a in a in a tiny house to ensure that the quality is there? A lot of the same rules apply that you would use for looking at a new house or looking to hire somebody to do a remodel for you. You're looking at reputation. You're looking at quality of materials. You're looking at schedules. You're looking at all the same things that you would look at if you were going to be dealing with a a full-size home as a small home. I think a lot of those same rules apply. If you're dealing with somebody out there that's got maybe fairly bad negative reviews on the internet and I'm not just talking Yelp because that's that can be a <laughs> that can be its own ugly place that's right. not really fair to the rest of the world. So, mm. but if they've got a, um, a pretty rough reputation, that can be a challenge and it's something that you need to know going in. I think you should do all your homework on that. Take a look. Look at the the, the quality of building materials they're using in it. I mean, and it's depending on what you're trying to get. If you're trying to buy something that is a what I would call something in the entry level, then you need to expect that you're going to see a lot more oh. entry level pieces in mm. it. But if you're going in that you want to buy a luxury high-end one, then you're going to get a little higher men materials in it. That's what you got to be careful with from my perspective. So let's talk details about the differences from a layperson's perspective, the differences between an entry level and a luxury. Yeah, let's um, do that. So obviously, you know, a, a Dan B stove can cost anywhere from 125 bucks. The Fisher & Paykel we just used was 4000 That's a huge range. So, yes, it is. But that's probably not the only example. Um, appliances, you, I don't know that you necessarily get what you pay for. 4000 bucks a lot of pay for stove. Like I gotta that. tell you, that's over the top. <laughs> that, but, <never> <laughs> but nonetheless, so my point is, is that walk us through in a kitchen um, or or in a building of any kind, What kind of what's the difference between entry level and, a, and luxury? And my famous two-part question, the next thing is, and what attributes can you absolutely positively never consider the you know the cheap stuff like are do you think that there's certain things that you gotta at least get mid range or better to to get tr- good uh, performance out of on that one I'll, I'm gonna get that one right off the bat I do a dishwasher is one of them if you're gonna put oh. a dishwasher in if you're getting something that's under five hundred dollars for a dishwasher you might think of not getting a dishwasher wow you just do it yourself really? really because here's the thing if you buy a three hundred and fifty dollar home center dishwasher that you just pulled out of the the sale rack there that was it's it's their bonus buy of the day. Yeah, it's got the you know exposed element in the in the bottom, and it's got it's just what, the, what's an element? It's what is the that? little. It's a almost like an oven element in the bottom. Oh, the thing that the, heats, it, heats up. it up. Yeah. yeah, and it's and it doesn't clean well, and it's really loud, especially in a tiny home or a small <laughs> or a small kitchen. That's a good point. You're wasting 24 inches of space. Oh, if you're going to use too. 24 inches of space in a kitchen, especially a small one, mm-hmm. you better make it count. That makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you're going to if you're going to have to pre-rinse the dishes and go in and pre-rinse them afterwards, why are you doing it? <laughs> that's, right? That's a pre-rinse afterwards. That's like you know after what I mean? rinse. Yeah, it's the, it's the oh, that didn't get clean. Oh, that didn't get clean. Yeah. Why are you spending the money on it? No, that's a really good point, footage? Eric. That's a great, the square footage is a really good point. So, so what? So wait a minute before we go. Oh, off sorry. That the real second quick, question. I, yeah. I, first of all, I have my second question, but also wanted to, him to tell our listeners what his idea was to do with the dishwasher that I did put in my latest house. 
Oh, using the okay. So, if you're using one of the dishwasher drawers that Fisher Pickell makes that I like, they're good stuff. You can do multiple things with them. One, you can also use them as dish storage and always just rotate them through. But you can also turn them into an ice cooler for party time. What? So Isn't you that can, awesome? yeah. So you can actually go in there and fill it back up with ice. It's self-draining. <laughs> and it's insulated for sound. And I actually got this from the from the uh, Fisher Pickell rep that that is one of the uh, the other undiscussed options. You can be having your little barbecue out there and and That's what load gonna... the beers and the sodas up in there, in and the you're dishwasher. good to go in the dishwasher. So we're gonna do it in the street, we're, and the dishwasher oh, really? is a push button, so we can push button, and the whole dishwasher will and that's gonna be like filled with like my secret stash of cooled beverages. <laughs> you see, that's all you need, and so that does work really well. But again. When you're talking to kind of circle back around to the part A of that two-part question, when you're dealing with higher-end materials, I think some of it is the uh, is the unseen stuff when you're dealing with 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 a tiny home or even just regular remodeling. You know, if you're putting in a nice tiled-in shower, if you didn't do the shower behind it correctly, like I. I'm a real proponent to using the composites out there instead of doing a mud set pan for the shower. So instead of building the whole base of the shower out of concrete, I like to use the Sluder or the Wetties or any one of those different materials out there because there's a little bit of flex to it and it's a waterproof material. If somebody comes in there and uses, you know, and puts in this kind of, well, old school but highly prone to leaking shower pan and shower system and you throw on $75 a square foot walker zanger tile on it that only lasts you five or six years before it fails, mm-hmm. you miss the boat on using the right materials in the right place. So I would say there's a lot of stuff that goes behind the scenes that is just as important than the high-end flooring, the high-end tile, the high-end appliances. You know, it's you'll see people put in very inexpensive quite frankly, cheap cabinetry that they put in very expensive granite on, and maybe the drawers aren't going to last. You know, maybe, especially in something like a tiny home where you've got to use every little square inch of it. If you have an inefficient drawer system, if you have something that's going to last five years, that's not going to ever take the chance of moving around if you take the thing down the freeway to move it, those are things that you need to take into account when you're looking at the quality of building materials. And at the same point, I don't know if I would always, if you were building a tiny home and you're going, hey, I'm going to move this thing 10 times in its lifespan, I don't know if I'd use fragile glass tiles or something in there. Yeah. I, may, I might pick something that's going to be a little bit more durable, but those are things that I would take into account. That, Damn. that No, no. <laughs> so so I, back on the quality, so... I understand the, the the different levels of quality of appliances and different levels of quality of materials like that tile you mentioned mm-hmm. that I've never heard of. <laughs> um, and I agree with you, once the tiny house is built, you can't see the quality of the materials unless you know one tile from another, for example. I mean, a painted cabinet is a painted cabinet for all a, a layman knows. How can a layman going into a, a build trying to assess this person's reputation? So let's say they've gone online, they've looked at the reputation, seems like it checks out there, but now they want to go and look at the specific house example that the guy actually built or woman actually mm-hmm. built. And, and it's painted and all the surfaces look beautiful. The exterior, the exterior of the interior looks great. But how does how does one figure out what's beneath all like like the shower you talked about? Well, those are questions I would ask on the front end, and I'd take a look as a, if you're looking to see 
a finished unit, I'd go see something that's in construction. Oh. Take a look at it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's actually I think a little bit easier to find something that's in construction in a tiny home than it is that's a true. real home because yeah. a remodeler, for instance, he's maybe only working on a couple projects. In mm. a tiny home, I think you're going to have a little bit more of a production capability with that than you would with maybe a small builder or something like that. Mm-hmm. That is being run by you know. I think there's some standards within that 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 help you out where if you're just getting a remodel, maybe this guy's done the last four projects have been bathroom remodels and now you're taking on a kitchen remodel. You don't have anything to compare that's been in the last yeah. year, for instance. Yeah, yeah. So I think it's a little harder that way where I think with tiny homes, you've got a little bit of a better chance to maybe take a look at the quality. But I'd start asking those questions. I'd, I'd do my research. I'd find out, hey, how do you build your showers? Ask the question, you know, because water is going to do more damage to fire in a tiny home. Water I'm sorry, water's going to do more damage to fire? Than fire. Or than fire. Okay. Water's yeah, yeah, yeah. going to be your biggest enemy in a tiny home if you don't have it under control. Interesting. What a great segue to my next question, which I already had, like, <laughs> ready to go. <laughs> okay, so, again, cabinets, right? Mm-hmm. On the on the low end, would you consider on the low end of cabinets? That's a melamine, right? Yeah, melamine or... or press board. Yeah, particle right? board, MDF, that kind of thing. So, uh, Ikea's in certain places. low quality? Yeah, some actually... Some of them are and some of them yeah. aren't. I mean, they have they have different qualities oh, of they cabinets do. as they well. They do. I'm not an Ikea person because, like the end panels, for instance, on Ikea stuff, that's not a solid panel of wood. If you've ever cut one open, they actually put cardboard in between on those panels for filler oh, so do. it doesn't for collapse weight. in. And for weight. And for weight. Now, weight's a big deal because they're shipping flat pack and they have to ship it all over the world. Right. But for strength, they add that in there and it's for weight. Huh. So huh. if you go to cut and modify an IKEA cabinet, for instance, you're not going to see wood all the way through it. You're going to see a quick panel and then some cardboard in the middle of it where the everything attaches. There's particle board or chipboard wood in there. But... You know, that's that's some of the challenges huh. you run into. But you do sacrifice a little strength in that. Right. But I wanted to also talk about the fact that some people make the mistake of putting even melamine trim. So we'll go away from cabinets for a minute. We'll talk about like things like melamine trim. And then they have moisture issues. Man, that stuff sucks up it does. any you know, any uncontrolled humidity in that little space. So talk a little bit about not just kitchens, but houses in general and moisture and problems they can, you know, that can result from un, unfettered humidity. Yeah, here in the Northwest, we're, we're talking locally, that is, moisture does more damage than fire does here because it is just a constant little battle. Mm. When you use things like MDF or chipboard or things like that that have interiorated glues, as soon as they become damp, it turns into a sponge and it doesn't take much for that stuff to start looking like oatmeal. <laughs> And then you got a mess. You do. You got a mess at that point. Yeah. I mean, and here's the problem with that is that maybe you could have spent just a little bit more and gotten a finger-jointed pine or something like that that's going to be a little more durable. Um, I, in bathrooms, for instance, now in my designs, I don't use a lot of wood trim anymore. Most of my clients, when I do a tile floor, I do a tile splasher on the bottom that, that bring the tile up and use the tile as the trim. Oh, interesting. Well, it's more durable. If yeah, you're yeah. in there mopping with it or you got yeah. water splashing around, yeah, yeah. guess what? You've got now a sealed surface right, right there. Right, huh. And it protects it. So I use a lot less wood materials, especially in wet spaces like that, for that exact reason. Huh. Uh, I don't do wood backsplash. I haven't done wood backsplashes in a kitchen in 20 years because... Again, it's wood. It's going to be a pain to maintain. And if you can put tile and with the new tiles, the tile grouts out there, you can get, you know, the the epoxy and urethane grouts that are, 
that you don't have to seal, that won't leak, that, you know, the, the urethanes are kind of the newest one. And it's almost like a urethane caulking, and it's got some flexibility to it. So you can actually do, in a tiny home, you could literally do a shower in there and not really have to do a lot of caulking in there where things come together. You yeah. can actually use that grout there. And it gives it a little bit of flexibility, and especially in a tiny home where it needs to have a little bit because it's going to have some no matter how well you design it. It's still a wood structure that is not on a concrete pad. It's on a base. So even the strongest of steel is going to have a little bit of movement in it. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. We put some tile in a tiny house recently, and uh, the tile guy was all, well, I wasn't really planning on grouting that. I'm like, what? Huh? Huh? And he's like, well, if I grout it, then I have to come back tomorrow. I'm like, then I guess I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> Like, he wanted yeah. to do what's called a tight fit, and he called it tight fit with a thin set. He was literally just going to put the tiles right up against each other and then just, like, fill the gaps with something he called thin set. I'm like, no, 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 no. This has to go down the road. Like, there's wheels on it. You know, it has to has to move a little bit there, people. Wow, that's sketchy. I that know. is sketchy. I was looking. I was waiting for your reaction. That yeah. seems like a not a good thing to do. Well, if he informed I me that I put the shelving in the wrong spot, and I'm like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. What do you mean the shelf is in the wrong spot? Because you got to fill the space between the countertop and the shelf. And he's like, well, it's too big. I'm like, no, no, no. Here's the here's the dimension for the tile. Here's the dimension for the grout. And he was like, oh, well, I wasn't going to grout it. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> I'd have been tempted to go. You're done for the day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yep. Thank you for your time. Thanks for playing. Yeah. Party gifts at the door. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So it. So um. So again, from the outside, I, I understand you think that the tiny house, tiny houses themselves, have a lot of opportunity. What do you think about? Um. Ooh. Ooh. I really want to ask him the screws versus nails question. You oh, I've got. That. Let's I'm, do it. I've okay. Got so here, so. Okay. So there's this debate. That screws are terrible for tiny houses and that nails are the way to go. But some people argue that they're opposite direction. Is Correct. that right, Michelle? Yeah. So what what do you think? I think screws are the way to go. Really? Why? For, okay. For what application? So if you're doing drywall on the inside, okay. you got to have nails. You can't do nails. you got to do screws. Okay. That makes sense. Here's what happens. If you've got a nice finished flat, you know... While on the inside, those nails are going to pop out. You're going to get nail pops every single time. Why? So, I'll decide if I like because you. you've got you've got some. <laughs> there's some flexibility in a home, you know, and you want that to flex. But at the same point, if you use nails, nails have a great strength this way. But the problem with it is that when things dry out, and you know, you get to that eventual state of the humidity in the inside of the home, that lumber is going to, whether it was wet or dry, is going to move around a little bit. You're going to get a lot of, you have a high potential for nail pops on the inside of a of something like that. I would want that held in there and have the screws in there so I'm not doing drywall repairs after every move. That's my opinion on Interesting. In, interior okay. stuff. Have you seen that, Michelle, so, in tiny houses with nails popping out? Most, most commonly, nails uh, pop out. Excuse me. When people use nails on reclaimed floors in tiny houses with uninsulated trailers. <laughs> Yep. That They're is very like, specific. Well, I mean, I'm just saying you see it all the time yeah. because people, you've heard of the pallet wood floors yes. and the plywood floors. Mm-hmm. I mean, people, especially when it comes to flooring, yeah, you're right. You can do some really cool looking shit that's flooring, but they're not taking consideration, you know, again, the other sort of implications of using that type of material. But I have to circle back to the same question, though, because really, and the other half of that debate really is the sheathing. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, so what's your opinion on that? 
I would say on sheathing, I'd want to have screws from sheathing to to lumber. I'd go screws there as well because I really? would want it held together. Now, on the outside, where you could have a little bit of flexibility for shingles and things like that, I would say... So if I'm talking about just a plywood exterior on the outside of it on top of the 2x6s or 2x4s, whatever you're building the, building the tiny home out of, to me, I would want to use good quality screws on that to hold that together. So I have that strength because that that is part of the sheer strength of the side of that wall. I would want to use a nice structural grade screw on the outside of that. Now, I have no problem using nails to hold the finished material on the outside of that, like uh, shingles or things like that. I'd never use screws on that stuff. That's all a, a finished material. But when basic engineering principles for me, if I'm going to have a stud wall and I'm going to put on sheathing on the outside that's going to be completely covered by a finished material, personally, I'd use screws because it's going to make that a more rigid building. What about the sheer strength? Yeah, or so the lack thereof. Yeah, now so I the, use, I'm going to give you, yeah. are you are you talking about structural screws versus I'm talking structural screws. screws. Okay, so, so I'm what's the difference like using there? Uh, like right. a, a not to throw a name brand out there but like a Spax construction right, screw exactly. that has structure to it. I'm talking about that. I'm not talking about taking your gold cheapy deck screw okay. that you just right. bought and using that. No. Okay. Right. So okay. we're talking about yeah. So, so basically it's a nail with screws. Yeah, it's the, yeah, it. exactly. I'm talking structural here. I would I would spend a little bit more money if it was me using that structural screw on that because this is not a home that's going to be sitting there yeah. protected. That's a little ADU unit that's back behind that garage. That's never going to get any wind. That's never going to get. You've got in many cases, it's going to have some stress in his life being at least moved once. Yeah, yeah. That's like me. <laughs> like you as a human being, you or your tiny house? <laughs> I move and I get stressed out, and then I fall apart at the seams. So that's that's how I would do that because the the, the beauty is is with a tiny home, at least in my perspective, is that because of the size and the space of it. You don't have a huge difference in in fastener costs. You're not right. building a four thousand square right. foot home where right. this is a a ten thousand dollar decision you're making here. You're making a hundreds of dollars decision. And for me, I That's think especially point. when you're dealing with interior finishes that are nicer, I would want those exterior walls on that to be as structurally sound and rigid as I could get them. So my tile doesn't move. Yeah. So my 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 board walls, board and batten walls don't move, all those things. The the tighter I could make that box, the happier I would be from a construction side of it. Interesting. Hmm. Interesting. So talk about breathable tiny houses then, because what you're talking about, what, I, what I'm hearing is tight envelope. And when you create a tight envelope, then um, what are the moisture-related ramifications of that, sir? <laughs> there is always a moisture-related ramification. <laughs> we as humans love to make moisture, especially when we have a little tiny box that's yeah. really sealed up that yeah. we've got showers and sinks and, and faucets and all these yeah. things that are loving to make moisture. So that comes down to conditioning. So that all comes down to I would want, to me, I would want to have the thing very well sealed up and then have a really good air handling equipment inside mm. that would make sure and take care of the rest for me. Mm. Or you're going to build something that's planned to be a little bit drafty within, with but you lose energy efficiency at that point. So. Interesting and for balance. those people that have seen my video on YouTube, that results in frogs in your shower. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> the nice drafty house where you get frogs. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's trade-offs with everything. Yeah. Right. You know, you're going to, 
the the tighter you build it, the more efficient you build it, the more moisture slash mold slash you know dirty air quality issues you have on the inside. Interesting. Right. You have to challenge. Yeah, very interesting. We run into that with, uh, and the other thing you got to remember too is if you've got one thing, if you've got a big, let's say you've got a a, a stove in there, you've got a, you put in a really nice stove, so you got a really nice vent hood, mm-hmm. and let's say you've got a really nice little washer dryer situation in there where you got a stacked washer and dryer inside that you've stuck in a corner. You've also got to think up makeup air in that because now you're creating a vacuum inside. Because if you've got a 300 cubic feet per minute range hood that's you're cooking. <laughs> That's moving it Sucking out. out all the air, but there's no, <laughs> no air no coming, coming in. in. Yeah. <laughs> you got to think about that. That you have that helm with homes. Some, somebody will go in and put in their big, nice Viking range and put in a 1200 CFM range head. <laughs> if you have a little, little water heater that's gas fired that's in that, you can actually suck the carbon monoxide from that back from the outside. Oh, in my word. Really? So there's a huge safety issue if you have a water heater that's inside the envelope that's gas fired because now you're sucking that. That carbon monoxide back into the home, <gasps> thus poisoning it. So dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. I thought he was going to say that it, you, your range hood could blow out the the pilot light. <laughs> it's no. like sucking so hard. No, but it will it, it will suck that carbon monoxide from wow. another appliance back in. So We've you got to be careful with that. A few aha moments. Yeah, we have in today's show. This has been incredible. This is another reason why I'm really, really, really super freaking happy that my hot water heater's on the outside of my house. <laughs> yep. Add that to the list. Eric said so. <laughs> yep, that's it's a good place for it out there. Oh, that's interesting. Well, Eric, thank you so much for being on the show today, Eric Gornson from uh, Around the House with Eric G. Thanks, man. Yeah, so what's your blog having. address? Your blog address, web address, Facebook web address, identity, firstborn child. <laughs> <laughs> Around the House online will get you to everything of mine from my from my podcast from the radio show to my Morgan de Oregon segments that go on Meredith, which are my DIY home improvement TV stuff that I do that goes across the country. All right, do you do this full-time now? Pretty much, yeah. I do a little bit of design work on the side just to keep myself involved, involved in it. Yeah. But from doing radio and TV and then coming soon, probably some more Seattle TV, it's pretty much a full-time job. He has a face for TV, doesn't he? He does. He has a it's voice a for radio, for radio too. A face yeah. for radio. <laughs> <laughs> face for TV. Well, it's nice that you just kind of eased into that career. That's yeah, cool. it's been fun. Actually, yeah. I eased in, and I'll just leave you with this one. I actually started in high school in radio TV production. You did? And so that, it's, that was come full first, circle. it's come full circle. And my, uh, my photographer over at Fox 12 that I do my segments with, him and I took radio TV production together in high school. Did you uh, know each other? Oh, yeah. We were in the same class. Oh, my gosh. How small of a world is that? We played in our, our 80s rock bands, Mullets and All. So, yeah. Uh, I want to see pictures. Can I find pictures of that on your website? No, you can't, but I've got oh, them blocked man. away. And we have a uh, kind of armistice agreement between him and I that none of us will pull out. <laughs> if you don't show it, I won't show it. So. I still like you, but don't push it. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Well, thanks, Eric, for being on the show. Uh, and Tiny House listeners, this is so odd me sitting over here because I, I have to remember that there's another role I play. Uh, Tiny House listeners, please tune in next week for another great episode. I'm sure it's going to be a good one. And Eric, Rick McNerney, thank you so much for uh, helping us sound better than we actually are. And, and thank you, Perry, for wearing multiple hats today. <laughs> it's been weird because I I, I I can't come up. I haven't been able to come up with the questions that I usually come up with because I'm over here trying to make sure that the technology is working. 
Uh, That's more important, probably. No, way more important. It is really weird. We've been doing this for how many years now? So yeah. it is. It is weird to like switch the chairs around yeah, and really have is. a different view of the artwork. <laughs> yes, now. you do actually because like, you're sitting uh, wow, in my chair. I have chair. only appreciation for that picture over there. <laughs> it's actually a nice <laughs> picture. Yeah. That's uh, thank you, listeners. Um, you can find us everywhere: everywhere iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and all those other eleven podcast platforms. Yeah. The only place you can't find us is on KXL. But you can find Eric there, so <laughs> that's we're right. good. We're covered No, but now. you can find your interview with me. Oh, that's yeah. true. Yeah. That's, that's true. right. Can, <laughs> that's Chop- a good point. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Chopped it up into a podcast. So, you know, if they're not tired of listening to me from here, they can just go get their fill go. of me over on KXL. There you go. All right, you guys. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Tiny House Podcast. To find us online, go to tinyhousepodcast.com, where you will also find our show notes, if we remember to put them there. Our logo was designed by the amazing Carolyn Maine. Our website is hosted by the gang at Sightcast. Our theme music is by Oma Studio. Please go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating, or whatever. You tiny house-loving bastard. Tiny House Podcast is probably made in Portland, Oregon. <laughs>